Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of abuse and murder. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Larry Ayler was welcomed home from work by the blinking light of his answering machine. After a long day walking around construction sites in the spring heat, Larry was exhausted. He considered leaving the message until morning, but his curiosity got the better of him. His wife called to nag him about their son's junior prom. His buddy Don asked if he wanted to go fishing. But then came a message Ayler didn't expect. It sounded like a woman with an exaggerated southern drawl. Ayler thought for sure it was put on, almost as if to disguise her real voice. And once he heard what she had to say, he understood why. If you want to know the riddle of Roseanne's death, she said, I have the answer. Ayler gawked at his answering machine as the message ended. It had almost been four years since his girlfriend, Roseanne Galliunas, was murdered. Ayler didn't know what to make of the cryptic message, but he knew exactly who to call next. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Last week, we looked at the shocking 1983 murder of Roseanne Galliunas in Texas. The police investigation quickly went cold, leaving a brutal killer on the loose. This week, we'll follow Larry and Joy Ayler as they try to rebuild their marriage. Then, we'll hear what changes when Detective McGowan's stalled investigation is revitalized by a stunning revelation. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f is going on? 
Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Detective Morris McGowan felt like a failure. It was 1985, nearly two years since Roseanne Galliunas had been murdered. The detective tried to keep his hope alive, praying some new development would suddenly fall in his lap. But the calls from Roseanne's family asking for updates were getting harder and harder to stomach. Outside of Roseanne's family, public interest in the case had waned. Even Dr. Galliunas only contacted him occasionally and had moved on to dating someone new. The one exception was Roseanne's boyfriend, Larry Ayler. Following Roseanne's death, Larry reconciled with his wife, Joy, but he still spoke constantly about his relationship with Roseanne, even in front of her. Years later, Larry continued to put fresh flowers on his mistress's grave every month. These habits started to grate on Joy, straining their already tumultuous relationship. Before we dive into the psychology here, Please note, I'm not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. Though it was understandable for Joy to feel frustrated by her husband grieving the woman he left her for, Ayler's difficulty moving past such a traumatic event isn't unusual. According to a 2015 study published in the journal, Psychological Trauma, people who experience the loss of a loved one as the result of a violent act are at a greater risk of developing severe and prolonged psychological distress. Perhaps if Roseanne had died in another way, Ayler could have focused more on joy. But as it was, Roseanne's presence could be felt in the Ayler's relationship years after she was laid to rest and Ayler's lingering connection to Roseanne wasn't the only thing weighing on the marriage. Since he and Joy had started dating in 1966, they had been through a long series of ups and downs. High school sweethearts, the two had married in 1968 and within two years had a child together, a son named Chris. According to Joy, Ayler seemed to delight in making her feel inferior, he told her she was unattractive and criticized her abilities as a mother. Her self-esteem plummeted and she became nervous and soft-spoken when her husband was around. It didn't help that Larry Ayler could charm the pants off anybody, yet typically focused on any woman in his vicinity. He soon got a reputation for trying to sleep with his clients. Roseanne Galliunas had proven that. Still, with her husband's mistress out of the picture and their marriage on the rebound, Joy was determined to put it all behind her. But she soon learned something that changed her view of her husband forever. It was the lunch rush at the Dixie House restaurant in Dallas. Joy was dining with her younger sister Elizabeth, though her mind had been elsewhere for most of the meal. She was putting off a thorny question. Finally, she set down her fork looked her little sister in the eye and asked her if she had ever had an affair with Ayler. Elizabeth's eyes filled with tears as she confessed that, yes, the two of them had been in a secret relationship while Elizabeth was still a teenager. It had continued for several years before a guilt-ridden Elizabeth broke things off. Elizabeth was terrified her sister would hate her, but Joy didn't blame Elizabeth. She knew whose fault it was. 
Early on in Joy and Ehler's marriage, she remembered her husband spending a lot of time with Elizabeth. She hadn't thought anything of it at the time, but someone else had, her older sister, Carol. She told Joy about her suspicions, but Joy refused to believe her. Ever since that day, Joy had tried to forget Carol's words, but recent events brought the issue to mind again, because Elizabeth had just gotten married. If they cared at all, most men would have been happy to hear the news, not Larry Ayler. Instead, he flew into a rage, forbidding Joy to attend her own sister's wedding. His reaction caused Joy to recall her older sister's warning, and now that Joy had verified it, she had a major decision to make. Joy filed for divorce in June 1985. It looked like after 17 years of putting up with Ehlers' put-downs and philandering, she'd finally had enough. But old habits die hard. By early 1986, she seemed willing to give Ehler a fourth chance and their divorce attorneys filed to dismiss the case. The Ehlers continued along as they always had from there, with Larry doing whatever he wanted and Joy pretending she didn't notice. This caused some tension with Joy's parents. Her father, Henry Davis, had to hear from his employees and clients about Ehler's infamous wandering eye. Then, about five months later, a dramatic turn of events threw another wrench in the Ehlers' marriage. On June 14, 1986, Ehler and his friend Don Kennedy were sitting in the loft of the Davis family farm, sipping from a bottle of bourbon in the summer sunshine. They'd come out to saddle a couple of horses for Joy and her mother, but as the sun sank below the trees, it was clear Joy had forgotten all about the trail ride. Annoyed, the two men headed back to town in Ehler Suburban. Less than a mile from the farm, as the SUV approached a wooden bridge over a creek, they spotted a brown Ford pickup parked in the middle of the road. Assuming someone was just taking a rest stop in the bushes, they crossed the bridge and continued driving. Suddenly, a hail of gunfire engulfed the car. Bullets whizzed past Ehler's head, shattering the side window and windshield, punching through the seats. Kennedy peered over his headrest to see a figure standing in the middle of the road, pointing a gun. Kennedy started to yell, but stopped when he felt a stinging sensation in his left elbow. He'd been shot. Ehler slammed on the gas. They passed the pickup truck and Kennedy thought he saw a second person duck down in the cab, but they were going so fast he couldn't be sure. Ehler raced to a police station, assuring Kennedy that they'd get him to the hospital once he'd reported the crime. And he already had suspicions about who'd orchestrated it. He'd bet money it was Joy's father, Henry Davis. The man had it out for him. All Kennedy could do was clutch his bleeding arm and thank his lucky stars they hadn't brought their sons along. At the Tyrrell Police Department, Officers listened to Ehler's story and took photos of the bullet holes in his Suburban. After taking everything in, the investigating officer told Ehler that it sounded like they happened upon a drug deal. Or maybe poachers who thought they were going to get turned in. Either way, the location of the ambush meant the crime was in Kaufman County jurisdiction, so they couldn't do anything. By the time Kennedy finally got to the emergency room, it was after midnight and his fingers had grown numb. 
Kennedy's wife and son were already there. Of course, his family was incredibly concerned and relieved he was safe. When Joy and her parents heard the tale of the ambush, though, their reaction was underwhelming. Henry Davis mostly seemed concerned about why a good man like Kennedy had gone with Ayler to the farm in the first place, further fueling Ayler's suspicions. When everyone was finally bandaged up, Joy took Ayler aside and told him she was scared someone was trying to kill him. Then she said she was going to stay with her parents until things died down. Ayler was dumbfounded. His wife thought someone was out to get him, and her first response was to keep her distance? He just stared at her, then walked out the door alone. Surprisingly, it wasn't Joy's behavior or Ayler's suspicions that ultimately ended their marriage. That came days later, when Ayler made an ironic discovery. Joy was cheating on him. He came across it by accident. He stopped in his son's room to make a phone call and mistakenly hit the redial button. When a local plumbing company answered, his interest was piqued. He drove to their offices and found his wife's red Porsche parked outside. After lingering for half an hour, a pickup pulled in, Joy emerged, and Ayler saw the driver, a man named Jody Packer, lean across the seat and kiss her. That was the final straw. Apparently, he could take a potentially murderous family, but not infidelity. The divorce was finalized on August 19, 1986, but despite being legally separated, Ayler still found himself stewing over the thought of joy with Packer. He also became more paranoid that someone was trying to bump him off. He shared increasingly bizarre stories about encounters with people he was convinced were aiming to kill him. He even started sleeping on the living room couch with a handgun close by, just in case. To the world, it seemed like Larry Ayler was losing it. Then, late in the spring of 1987, he received an interesting voicemail. Ayler pressed play on his answering machine to hear a woman with a bad Southern accent promising answers about Roseanne's death. He told Detective McGowan about it, but when the mysterious stranger didn't call back, they figured it was a prank. That is, until nine months later, in April 1988, when Larry answered the phone and heard a familiar fake drawl. This time, though, the voice wasn't mysterious. It was terrified. She told him she knew who killed Roseanne and that he was out to get her, too. Ayler did his best to calm the frantic woman down and promised he knew someone who could help. Detective McGowan had done his best to move past the unsolved murder of Roseanne Galliunas. He tried to focus on work, but his failure to crack the case hounded him like a shadow. So when Larry Ayler called to tell him about the mysterious woman, he tried not to get his hopes up, but he did agree to meet her at an all-night restaurant called JoJo's. As McGowan waited in a booth for the stranger to arrive, he wondered what he was getting into. When a blonde woman in a black dress joined his table, he had his answer. She said her name was Carol Garland. And then she shocked him to his core. She told McGowan she was Joy Ayler's older sister. Joy was the one who planned Roseanne's murder. 
Coming up, Carol reveals a plot straight out of a soap opera. It's been said that art is in the eye of the beholder. But what about greed or chaos? Hi, it's Richard from the Spotify original from Parcast, Unexplained Mysteries. This September, join us as we comb through the clues of some of the greatest art mysteries of all time. The Lost Da Vinci, the fake Rothko, the real identity of Banksy. If you've never listened to Unexplained Mysteries before, there's no better time to dive in than with this fantastic five-part special. You can also find hundreds of other mystifying stories and new episodes each week by following Unexplained Mysteries free on Spotify. Now, back to the story. McGowan stared at the blonde woman across the booth from him, trying to wrap his head around what she was saying. To him, Carol's claims sounded insane. In his dealings with Joy, the detective had found her to be charming and classy. She always seemed calm and level-headed, not the type of person to engineer a revenge murder. But still, this was his first potential lead in months, so he settled in to listen to Carol Garland's dramatic story. He soon learned that Carol was the black sheep of the family, the eldest of three sisters, she'd had a strained relationship with her parents and siblings since her teenage years. To ask the Davis family, that was because of Carol's dramatic tendencies and her history of frittering away money. To ask Carol, it was because the middle daughter Joy was the favorite and she was the scapegoat. Whatever the truth was, it was clear that Carol's relationship with the Davises was less than ideal. Which is why Carol was surprised when Joy called her up back in early 1986, right after she'd suddenly called off her divorce from Ayler. Years earlier, Carol had warned Joy that Ayler was having an affair with her younger sister. Now, Joy was sorry she hadn't believed her. She claimed she was planning to leave Ayler once and for all. But there was a catch. Joy told Carol that she believed Ayler was responsible for Roseanne's death. She was afraid he'd do the same to her if she tried to leave him. To remedy the problem, she told Carol she'd hired someone to scare Ayler. Then she asked her sister for a favor. If a man called her house asking for a Mary, Carol should let Joy know right away. Carol was surprised at Joy's sudden change of heart, but she never liked Ayler, so she agreed to help. Several months passed, then, in early April 1986, a man called and asked to speak to Mary. Carol relayed the message to Joy, and that was that. But to Carol's surprise, the phone kept ringing. For the next several months, Carol regularly received calls from Mary. They were always brief and businesslike, until one day when the man on the other line struck up a conversation. He said his name was Bill Garland, and told Carol she had a nice voice. They talked for about 15 minutes before hanging up. The next time he called, it was the same thing. Soon, they were on the phone for hours at a time. In their conversations, Carol claims Garland always assumed she knew more about what was going on than she actually did. Over time, she gleaned more information about Garland's involvement with Mary, aka Joy. 
A short time after Ayler and his friend were ambushed on the bridge, Carol got the final shocking piece of the puzzle. On one of their calls, Garland expressed frustration with Mary. She still hadn't paid him for the job he'd done on the woman her husband had been messing around with. He went on to rant about how he'd been trying to finish a second job for her, a mission to kill her husband, but the people he'd hired kept messing things up. Carol realized then that she was in way over her head. She'd been casually chatting on the phone with a professional hitman for months, and her sister was the one who'd hired him. She couldn't be sure if Garland did the killing himself or if he was a middleman, but it didn't really matter. Carol claims that she tried to distance herself from Garland, but he grew more insistent about staying in her life. He started to stalk her, calling to compliment the clothes she wore during the day. Other times, he told her he'd watched her shop during her lunch break or talked about how pretty her preteen daughter was. Carol always brushed off his suggestions that they meet in person, but by September 1986, she didn't feel like she had much of a choice. Then, in October, Carol found herself married to her sister's hitman. For the safety of her daughter, she didn't tell her when she moved into Garland's house. He even started sleeping next to her with a 357 Magnum under his pillow. For some, it might be hard to understand how Carol could have married a man who'd repeatedly threatened her life, but she felt trapped in an abusive relationship with no safe way out. She continued to live in fear with her new husband for nearly two years, until April 19, 1988. That was just five days before her second ominous call to Larry Ayler. Following an argument, Carol claims that Garland put a gun to her head and pulled the trigger. The only reason she lived was because the chamber happened to be empty. Carol called the police on Garland and they took him to jail. Because he had no criminal record, he got out in short order, but Carol knew it was only a matter of time before he came after her again. So, after nearly a week of looking over her shoulder, she did something desperate. She called Larry Ayler. Detective McGowan couldn't believe the story he'd just heard. When he told his fellow officers, they also had a hard time believing it. In fact, they found a whole file of strange complaints in the police system under Carol's address. It seemed like she had a history of tall tales and wild stories. Quite a few of the other officers were convinced Carol made the whole thing up in an attempt to get revenge on her husband. But a few details from her story convinced McGowan to dig deeper. In exchange for protection against Garland, McGowan convinced Carol to help with his investigation. To start, he needed Joy to talk about her involvement in the murder on tape. Soon after that, Carol invited Joy to dinner. She tried not to glance at the envelope sitting on the table between them, but it was difficult. Beneath the seal was a tiny recording device. Now Carol just had to nudge Joy in the right direction. The conversation started light. Joy complimented her nail polish. Then Carol turned to the task at hand. She told Joy she knew everything and Joy was immediately suspicious. She asked if Carol was wearing a wire. Carol offered to let her frisk her, but Joy didn't take the bait. The two sat silently for a few moments. Carol could see the wheels turning in Joy's mind. 
Before she could ask how Carol knew, Carol told her she and Garland were secretly married. Joy looked as though she'd been slapped. No idea her estranged sister had married the man she hired to kill her husband. Carol pushed forward, saying she just couldn't understand how Joy had gotten involved. With that, Joy started talking. She said Ayler was abusive and that he'd emptied out their joint banking accounts before confessing that he was leaving her for Roseanne. Carol, who now had her own stories of an abusive husband with Garland, could understand. For a while, it almost seemed like the two sisters were bonding over their shared trauma. Carol might have felt a connection with her sister for the first time in years, but ultimately, she knew it wouldn't last. Because by the end of the conversation, Joy Ayler had admitted to her part in the murder of Roseanne Galliunas. The next several months were a flurry for Detective McGowan. Joy was arrested and was quickly free on a $140,000 bond. She went back to her home with her new boyfriend, Mike Wilson, and awaited her trial, set for May 1990. McGowan also arrested Bill Garland, who filled the detective in on the details. The truth was that Garland was more of a middleman. He helped police find the man who actually shot Roseanne, a guy named Andy Hopper. After a months-long pursuit, police brought Hopper into custody. It looked like Detective McGowan had done it. After years without progress, he'd finally found and arrested everyone involved in Roseanne's murder. He'd even bagged the two hapless brothers who'd failed to kill Larry Ayler on the bridge. With a week to go before Joyce's trial, McGowan was feeling on top of the world. That's when the news came in. Joy Ayler had vanished. Coming up, Joy takes the authorities on an international manhunt. Now, back to the story. In May 1990, practically the entire state of Texas was talking about Joy Ayler. Mere days before her trial, the homicidal housewife jumped bail and fled with her new boyfriend, an attorney named Mike Wilson. To top it off, Wilson had recently been busted for conspiracy to distribute 46 pounds of cocaine. It seemed like the story had everything, and authorities were scrambling to find the two fugitives. Meanwhile, Mike Wilson was peering down a long line of glistening Canadian pastries. He and Joy had made it across the border and stopped by a grocery store for a celebratory donut. Wilson wasn't sure what flavor Joy, who was waiting for him back at the motel, would prefer. Chocolate? Glazed? Jelly-filled? They'd only been seeing each other for about six months, but Wilson was already in deep very deep. Joy was the most fascinating woman he'd ever met. They'd gotten together during the most tumultuous time of her life, but Wilson had watched her handle every challenge with grace. He counted himself lucky to have found someone as beautiful, intelligent, and unflappable as Joy. Sure, people had raised their eyebrows when he started dating the woman who'd famously tried to have her husband killed, but his connection with her transcended their pasts. When Wilson first met Joy, he was addicted to cocaine. That may have influenced Wilson and Joy's relationship. 
1991 article in Science Magazine about the consequences of cocaine addiction found that the fundamental effect of cocaine is the magnification of the intensity of almost all normal pleasures, including emotions and sexual feelings. That might explain his decision to join Joy as a fugitive. At the time, though, Wilson was more concerned with the powdered donuts than his life choices. He grabbed some pastries and headed back to the motel, completely unprepared for what he was about to find. His calm, even-keeled joy was in a full-blown state of panic. She'd spread all of the cash she'd brought with them out on the bed. It was supposed to be everything she'd earned from pawning her jewelry and other assets, over $400,000. But upon counting it, she made a horrifying discovery. In her rush to flee the country, she'd totally forgotten about some of the cash hidden in her father's tool chest, which contained around $250,000. Over half of the money she'd amassed for her new life was gone. Wilson was truly at a loss for words. Joy's tear-stained face had him expecting the worst, but she was in tears because she only had $150,000. Desperate, Joy started to concoct wild scenarios to get someone back in Dallas to bring them the money. Wilson quickly shot down these flights of fancy. They were on the run. The cops were watching everyone they knew in case they got into contact. They had to let the money go. As Wilson held the shaking woman in his arms, he couldn't help but feel a bit disturbed himself. He'd thrown his life away, even leaving behind his teenage son, all for joy. And now, he was left wondering, did he know her at all? Though Joy seemed to accept that the cash in her dad's tool chest was gone, from that point on, she became completely obsessed with saving money. Even with tens of thousands of dollars, she sold newspapers, collected unused tabs of butter and sugar packets from room service trays, and went out of her way to pick up dimes from the sidewalk. As Wilson watched Joy's erratic behavior, he realized it was the money that allowed Joy to maintain her famous composure, not his support. Making matters worse for Wilson was the fact that he couldn't fund his cocaine habit. As the weeks went by and he sobered up, he started to regret what he'd done. He secretly wondered if his love for Joy was mutual, and he got his answer on May 25th, 1990. Three weeks after Joy and Wilson flew the coop, a story came out about the mess they'd left behind in Dallas. Joy's cousin, who had helped them escape, was indicted for lying to a grand jury about his role in the affair. He was facing up to 10 years in prison and a $10,000 fine. On top of that, he'd already told authorities where Joy and Wilson were headed. They had to get out of Canada, fast. The two fugitives packed their things and made a plan. Their new destination, Mexico City. They bought tickets separately to increase the odds that one of them made it. Joy volunteered to go first, so before dropping her off at the airport, Wilson gathered up her money and taped it to her body under a loose flowing dress. When they parted ways at the airline gate, Joy promised to call him once she landed. Wilson planned to follow as soon as he heard from her. And as she disappeared into the throng of tourists, he couldn't help but wonder which of them was lying. 
The weekend passed agonizingly slow for Wilson as he waited for Joy's call. Though he'd long since changed locations, he compulsively checked in with his previous hotel to ask if anyone had left a message for him. The answer was always no. As Sunday evening drew to a close, Wilson decided the jig was up and made plans to turn himself in. After giving Joy one more day to contact him, he finally hit the road. His plan was to drive to Calgary and hopefully get a flight back to Dallas where he'd surrender to authorities. But on Tuesday morning, in one last act of hope, he placed one last call to the hotel to check his messages. To Wilson's shock, the woman at the front desk told him that someone had left a message for him just minutes ago. Wilson was overjoyed. She hadn't abandoned him. Just like that, thoughts of turning himself in vanished. He left the phone number for the resort he was staying at with the front desk and started to imagine their life together in Mexico. Unfortunately for Wilson, his dreams never became reality. Within an hour, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police were knocking on his door. The message from Joy was phony. She hadn't really called. In the end, Wilson decided the woman he loved had chosen money over him. He was just another man Joy Ayler had used to get what she wanted. Joy's international goose chase continued for months. At the end of 1990, her trail went cold. It looked like she'd eluded McGowan for the final time, but that's when the detective caught a lucky break. It was a fluke, really. A clerk at the passport office in Houston doing a routine search happened upon a name that brought up a red flag. A passport was issued last November for a man that had died 25 years ago. An investigation revealed the license plate number of the applicant was registered to a different man, a name McGowan hadn't heard in months, Joy's ex-boyfriend, Jody Packer. It turned out that Packer was making a startling number of international flights using his fake passport, traipsing around Mexico, Spain, France, Morocco, and Saudi Arabia. McGowan had suspected someone was helping Joy travel around undetected for some time now, and it looked like he'd finally found out who. Figuring they had to be getting around in those foreign countries somehow, McGowan checked with rental car companies in Europe. He discovered Jody Packer had recently rented a car in Nice, France. And what's more, after a fender bender, the car had recently been towed. The report included an address in Vence, France. Just like that, Joy Ayler was cornered. When French detectives knocked on the villa door at the address they'd been given, a beautiful woman with short blonde hair answered. She said she didn't know who Joy Ayler was. Her name was Liz Sharp. She'd been in Vence for months now with her husband, who was away on business. When detectives insisted on taking her to the station to verify her identity, she smiled and asked for a moment to shower and change first. While the detectives waited patiently, Liz Sharp put on jeans, white socks, and tennis shoes. She checked her hair in the mirror, then slipped something into one of her socks before following the detectives to their squad car. At the station, a fingerprint analysis revealed Liz Sharp was, in fact, the notorious Joy Ayler. 
McGowan celebrated and his team scrambled to prepare for the trial. The DA intended to pursue the death penalty, but Joy didn't plan on sitting in a courtroom. When the lead French detective approached Joy's cell to discuss plans for extradition, he found her curled up in a corner. She'd smuggled a razor blade in her sock and attempted to die by suicide. She was rushed to a hospital and made a full recovery. While she healed up, the political wheels started to turn. The French public heard Joy's extraordinary story and sympathized with her plight. Many considered her to be a poster girl for crimes of passion and spoke out against the death penalty, which France had abolished in 1981. For two and a half years, support for Joy grew. A one-time cellmate started gathering signatures petitioning for her release. It was rumored that even the wife of the French president was in her corner. In the end, the country only agreed to extradite if prosecutors promised not to pursue capital punishment. U.S. authorities agreed to the request, and in November of 1993, Joy was finally returned to Dallas to face justice. Her accomplices faced the full wrath of the U.S. legal system without the protections of French extradition. Bill Garland pleaded guilty and was sentenced to 30 years in prison. Jody Packer was sentenced to 43 months and ordered to pay a $110,000 fine. The two brothers who failed to kill Larry Ayler on the bridge were both sentenced to life in prison. And Andy Hopper, the man who had actually killed Roseanne Galliunas, was sentenced to death in March of 1992. He was executed in 2005. Lastly, Mike Wilson, the lovesick attorney, was tried for cocaine possession and sentenced to 15 years. His lawyers filed a motion to reduce his sentence and Wilson served less than four years behind bars. He was released in December of 1993. Months later, Joy Ayler finally stood trial on August 1st, 1994. During the proceedings, Mike Wilson testified that during their time on the run, Joy told him, Roseanne got what she deserved. If she did it over again, she said the one thing she'd do differently would be to kill Roseanne herself. With such damning testimony, the jury wasted no time convicting Joy of capital murder. With the death penalty off the table, a judge sentenced her to life in prison. When her verdict was read, Joy Ayler, true to character, revealed no emotion unflappable to the very end. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. For more information on Joy Ayler and her murder-for-hire revenge plots, amongst the many sources we used, we found the book Open Secrets, A True Story of Love, Jealousy, and Murder by Carlton Stowers to be extremely helpful in our research. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Scott Stronick, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Danny Messerschmidt, Edited by Terrell Wells. Fact-checked by Katherine Barner. Researched by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. 
and produced by Bruce Kitovich. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Thank you.